0: Who is this strange guy talking? James La Follette No, LaFollette, La Follette, La Follette. James is good enough. James is good enough. So good morning. Thanks to the three of you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so as uh, was mentioned, Glenn is at a missions training. And uh His two things surprised me by Glenn's call. Um, The first is that he called and wanted me to come over and speak. And the second was that he didn't forbid me uh, to tell a joke. Okay, so... I just I have to tell you I'm I'm laboring under a few handicaps. For one thing, I don't have a PowerPoint for you, which apparently somebody else didn't have PowerPoint for you this morning anyway. So that's okay. Um, I hand wrote my notes instead of typing them, which you know that's not a big deal for you, but for me I can tell how long I go by how many pages. So. We could be here a while, because I don't know how long it takes to go through handwritten notes. Um, And anyway, but here's the deal. If you have a complaint, I have a form that you can fill out in triplicate and submit it to Glenn. Oh, well, actually, if if you don't if you don't like today's teaching, then come back next week because I won't be here. I have a, a couple of passages I want us to look at in just a moment. And um, so I was with Glenn in Nicaragua a few years ago. And they, they uh, Glenn likes to pick on me, by the way. If you don't know that, Glenn likes to pick on me. So at an international airport not long after 9-11, he calls me Ahmed in a very loud voice. And so now my nickname is Ahmed, and uh, you got to love it. So they just they, they, they beat me up all the time. And then um, I went on the zip line. None of the other, it was all pastors. None of the other pastors would go on that zip line. I said, I'll go on the zip line. I said, but I'm not going to pay for it. I never saw people pull money out of their wallet so fast in my life. And so I went on the zip line, and, and they actually stopped... Harassing me for about two days. They were like they respected me or something and they asked me to to speak at one of the churches and uh, um, I think Steve Fish said don't don't tell any jokes because You know the phrase it gets lost in the translation. Yeah, well it gets lost in the translation so I told them this I told him this story about the two middle school boys who were talking about their church? One went to a vineyard, and one went to a Catholic church. So they they decided they were going to do a exchange program. So the first week they went to the Catholic church, and um, you know all of the different liturgy, and they stand up and sit down and kneel, and what are the sign of the cross and the different things. And so the, there's a running commentary. The Catholic boys give a running commentary as to what this means, that and that means this, and so then the next week. They go to the Vineyard Church, and there's there's a band that's loud, and with drums. And what's that? What's that about? And people raising their hands, people kneeling, and so the Vineyard boy's giving a running commentary, and uh, and then finally the pastor gets up to speak, and he takes off his watch and puts it on the pulpit. And the Catholic boy says, "What does that mean?" And the Vineyard boy says doesn't mean a thing. So I have my uh, I have my countdown clock here, but it's not working. Come on. I'm gonna hit it. But it doesn't mean a thing. No, I, I understand. I know you guys gotta be out of here or the kids have to be out of the, the classroom. So let's look at a couple of passages in Luke chapter twenty-four and in John chapter twenty-one There are longer passages, and I'm going to read them, try to read them through quickly because I think that we can glean some helpful things. These are two post-resurrection appearances. We just celebrated uh, Easter two Sundays ago, and this is happening very quickly. In fact, um, both of them on the same day, on the resurrection day, later in the afternoon, presumably, and uh, we'll start with the passage in Luke. Chapter 24 is familiar to you, the the two on the road to Emmaus. But let's look at it anyway. In verse 13, it says, Now that same day, so that means resurrection day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, "What are you discussing together as you walk along?" They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, "Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they, pri- they replied, "He was a prophet. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, meaning Jesus, they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him how would you like to have been in that sermon just Jesus just kind of talking through the scripture as they approached the village which they were going Jesus acted as if he were going further but they urged him strongly stay with us it's nearly evening. So see, this is the evening of Resurrection Day. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to, him, to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. That's interesting to me. Now, notice that these are two disciples that are not part of the eleven. It was the 12, including Judas, but the 11 who celebrated communion. We, we, at least I, instinctively think that Jesus was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, i.e. in communion. So when we take communion, that Jesus reveals himself. But we'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, I, I would like to give you just a little bit of introduction because some, some people, uh, a lot of you I know over the years, I find it helpful to kind of know who's talking to me and so I want to give you a little bit of a, an introduction and also I, I think it relates to the text. So as, as has happened to me many, many, many times over the years, um, today's message is for me and you get to listen in while I talk to myself uh, and I mean that very seriously and I, I don't, um, there, you know, I'm going to share some things, but um, I don't, I'm not looking for sympathy. Um, you'll, you'll know why. I grew up in a, uh, Southern California, a broken home. My mom and dad were divorced when I was five because of an affair. And uh, uncharacteristically, the whole family went stayed with dad, really. My mom left. So my dad had my sister and three brothers and me, so five of us um single single dad worked three jobs um i could tell you a lot of stories there was we were poor i didn't know we were poor until i was in junior high um and then i realized that we were poor and uh, there was drugs violence um my sister was the oldest and she she was out pretty quick so then you had four men or three men and a boy um, and so there was just. I'll just give you one little glimpse. This is the kind of family. You know, we don't we don't think our family's dysfunctional until we get out into the world. You know, and then we realize, wow. Um, my my two brothers were eight and nine years older than me, and my mom was out of the home. We only saw her a couple times a year. She came for her birthday. Picture, her birthday. We're celebrating. Well, my older brother who was an enforcer for the Hells Angel? He hurt people. Um, and then the next brother is, was this hothead. Well, my oldest brother had a bullwhip. Now, why he had a bull? I don't know why he had a bullwhip, but he had a bullwhip, and he was snapping my second brother, Danny. He was snapping his foot. And, of course, being the hothead, he says, you do that one more time, and I'll cut it. So what do you think happened? He did it one more time, and he so then he went to the kitchen, he got a steak knife, he came out and he put the whip, you know, like he was going to cut it, and then, bam, bam, bam! He stabbed my brother in the the leg three times with a steak knife, while we're celebrating my mom's birthday. I was about 10 years old. My mom's freaking out, I'm freaking out, there's blood all over, we get the, you know, it's like, is this crazy? Is that... I mean, this is kind of crazy. So to say that I grew up in an unsafe, unstable environment would be uh, an understatement. But one thing that my dad did um, over the years was he took us to worship on Sundays. We went to church every Sunday. In fact, uh, I I have perfect attendance award somewhere for uh, Sunday school for years, but he, he also had sort of a rule that when you turned 16, you could decide whether you go or not. And so I watched as each one of my brothers, uh, the three of them, stopped attending worship on Sundays when they hit 16. So when I'm 15 years old, I'm thinking, one, one more year and I'm out of here. Fortunately for me, my sister had married an evangelist and they were at our church. And so, she invited me to come to some, some of the meetings, and even before that, she invited me to come to a, um, uh, something that was going on during the day, and there were these two beautiful young women there, and I suddenly became interested in church. And uh, it didn't take very long for me to realize that the girls were not interested in me, but God stepped in and rescued my life. My life changed as I began to give my heart to the Lord. And it wasn't very long after that 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 I feel like he called me to ministry. At the time, it was to be a preacher and whatever that meant. And I, I answered the call. So, 17 years old, I left Los Angeles for Australia, and uh, spent a year and a half living out of two suitcases, traveled around the world, working with my sister and her husband, itinerant preaching. And um, so here I am, 17-year-old, obviously not much training, Um, and so just before I left, I sat down with my pastor, whom I I dearly loved and still love, and, and I said, okay, so I'm getting ready to go into ministry, what words of wisdom do you have for me? Now uh, he he was kind of a a farm boy from Missouri, and uh, just he was actually brilliant, but he kind of came across as a country bumpkin. And so he says to me, he just laughed and he said, "Eat the chicken and throw away the bones." I'm like, really? I'm leaving family. I'm leaving the country. I'm 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 going. I'm giving my life for Jesus, and that's all you got. And he said it again and laughed. Then he chuckled. And I I pressed him. I said, really, I need some godly advice. And he said it a third time, and then he got very serious, and he said, listen. You are going to see in the ministry things that will disappoint you and disgust you. Take the good and leave the rest. That was 45 years ago. And it remains um, solid advice. And it's actually a part of the message, if I could ever get to it. Um, So from there, I traveled 18 months around the world. I came back. I was part of a church plant in San Francisco. I went down to Fuller for a, a time. I was called back to that church plant to be the lead pastor. I led that church into the vineyard. We then merged it with the San Francisco Vineyard. I became the executive pastor. And um, then we took a sabbatical, came up here to Aloha. Uh, My wife's parents had a house in Aloha. They said, it's available to you. So we came up here for a sabbatical. And after about a year, uh, nothing was opening up in the vineyard. It was very frustrating. And uh, things opened up for us in Hermiston. And that's a very long story. I'll, I'll spare you, but... Um, we went out to Hermiston to a a traditional church and brought it into the vineyard, and that was 22 years ago. So we we spent 22 years in Hermiston. About a year ago, I sensed that it was time for for me to let go of being the lead pastor. And um, there are probably a dozen reasons. I'm working on the different reasons of why and how that happened. But ultimately, I guess I could just say that I sensed my assignment there was was finished. And again, there's a lot behind that, but we'll leave it there. I knew it was the right thing to do, but it has proven to be one of the most difficult decisions that I've made in in my life. Um, Because I didn't have the next step. I... I'm not looking to... Re- people People say, oh, you're retired. Well, not by choice. I'm just unemployed. So 45 years of vocational ministry, 22 years at Oasis, and now I'm unemployed. So I tell people all these years I've been paid to be good and now I get to be good for nothing. Uh, Rebecca doesn't like that because actually I, I feel that way sometimes. And, you know, that'd be a challenge enough, but some unfortunate things happened that, that made it behind the scenes, that kind of made it even more difficult. So so temporarily, and I had to add that to my notes, temporarily, we've lost our ministry, we've lost our place, we've lost our faith community, we've lost our income, we've lost our direction, we've r- lost our rhythm, our schedule, and I am in a place that I didn't expect to be. I didn't plan it this way. Um, here's some words that, that have defined my life the last three months. Uh, disoriented. People say, how are you? And my first answer is I'm better than a Syrian refugee living in Egypt, but um, I am disoriented. I'm confused. I'm uncertain. I'm grieving. I'm aimless, lost, empty, angry, tired, unmotivated. And other than, other than that, we're doing great. So let's look again at our text because I don't want to superimpose my situation onto the text, but rather let the text speak to us. And I um, actually was talking to Rose Swetman and um, she, she suggested looking at this post-resurrection appearance, especially to the two on the road to Emmaus. So let, let's draw a couple of things. And I have three points that I'll give you that I think will be takeaways, but look at a couple of things in Luke and John both. Oh, actually, we didn't ever get to John, did we? Let me summarize for you. You remember the story in John where on the same day, resurrection day, the, uh, this is John 21. Peter says to six other disciples, there are seven in total, and they're listed there. Two of the names are not listed. One of them is presumably John. John didn't like to talk about himself. He didn't like to include his name. So John is part of the seven. Seven disciples. There by the Sea of Galilee, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. This was not recreational fishing, like we would say, hey, I'm going to go fishing and uh, relax. No, this, this was going back to their career. So, with the passage in the book of John and in uh, uh, Luke, they're, they're headed home. They're going back to their former career. They're headed toward the familiar, they're headed toward what they knew. And I think that's kind of important. When, when you're confused, when you don't know what else to do, you tend to default with what you do know. So in verse 14, what we just read in, in the book of Luke there, the first thing we see is that Jesus comes and he just walks with them. We don't really know how long. I mean, um, you know, it could be weird in our context, but maybe not in theirs. When they're talking about what had happened, they were actually processing I believe they were processing their grief. They were processing their confusion. They're saying, what what just happened? What's going on? And Jesus comes and the first thing he does is just walk with them. Could have been for a little while, could have been for a long while. But then the second thing he does is he begins to ask them questions. He gets them to talk. And they talk. They do talk. They begin to uh, talk more about what what's going on and and uh, they, they talk about their hopes and their dreams. It's like, man, we we, hot, we put our all our eggs in one basket. We went all in. We decided this was it. And then, boom, it was gone. And then he encourages them. How has he encouraged them? Well, he opened the scripture to them. And I would just say this. He encourages them by truth and hope. That doesn't mean that... I'm thinking about this for our own situation. If you encounter somebody that is disoriented, confused, and discouraged. Maybe the first thing we do is just be with them. We don't have to give them advice. We don't have to give them, uh, you know, chapter and verse. We just be with them. We walk with them. We ask them questions. We let them come out with what's going on inside. But but then we can give them encouragement. And we encourage them with truth. We encourage them with hope. Sometimes in the dark uh, recesses of my my life, when I, I just am the most discouraged, um, I talk with someone. I, I just had coffee with the chairman of the board at Oasis. I, I actually go to a counselor. Or I, I talk to someone, and inevitably, as I begin to share what seems so dark, they reflect reality back to me. They say, well, there, is there another possibility? Because we come to conclusions, we think, oh, that's the way it is or the way it will be. And someone has the ability to just reflect truth back to him. And it's in the middle, midst of that. Now, one other thing. Jesus is starting to, to walk away and he waits for their invitation for more. I, I, I think that's powerful. I think it's important. Jesus isn't going to force his way into our life encounters us, he draws things out. Now, we're, we're told later that in the scripture, their heart was stirred, something was stirring up. But Jesus didn't insert himself or force himself into the situation. He waited for them to invite him. And invite him, he did, they did. And he sits and he eats at the meal, and he reveals himself to them in this familiar, ordinary routine. I don't think that this is referring to communion Because these two were not at the Last Supper. That was for the twelve. But rather, the many times that Jesus sat with his disciples and followers and broke bread. This was something familiar. This is something that Jesus did week in and week out. He just hung out with people and he broke bread. And when he broke bread and gave thanks, all of a sudden their eyes were open, And in a moment, they saw him. But I want you to go back to verse 16 for just a second and look at 16 in uh, 24 of Luke. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, this was uh, an experience that you read about. Mary in the garden mistook Jesus for the gardener, right? She didn't recognize him right away. And in the John passage that I, I didn't read, I was wanting to read, they were out fishing And Jesus appears on the shore, he makes a fire, and these guys are looking from a distance, it says only 100 yards, but about 100 yards away, they see this guy on the shore, and somehow John, John, recognizes. Now obviously he didn't have the clothes that he normally wore, right? Because they were parted four different ways by the Roman soldiers, and then the one garment, the seamless undergarment, that was auctioned off. And the grave clothes were left in the grave. And so Jesus wasn't wearing his, his regular clothes, whatever that means. But somehow the physical resurrection body of Jesus was different. So we, we know that. But it says here they were kept from recognizing. Well, it might have been that, that resurrection appearance. But I wonder, and have wondered about this, if maybe Mary in the garden, the two on the road to Emmaus, and even the fishermen, were clouded by their grief. They were clouded by their confusion. They were clouded by their pain and their disappointment, maybe even their anger. Maybe they couldn't recognize Jesus because they just were so self-absorbed with their grief and pain that they couldn't see him. I think that's a possibility. But here, which, by the way, for the first century Jew, but also the first century Roman and Greek, there was no category for individual resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was absolutely phenomenal. There was no place, no category. N.T. Wright wrote a a thick book on the issue called "Surprised by Hope," and he goes through the historical background. These guys did they they didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They had no no even though he warned them or told them that he was going to do. They just had no category for it. So they were surprised. They weren't expecting it. But here's a question that I have: When it says but they were kept from recognizing him. I wonder if Jesus veiled himself until the right moment. And why is that important? Well, I think it's important because two things I've discovered in studying the Bible the last 45 years that are very certain. One is that God reveals himself. He revealed himself all through the Old Testament. He ultimately reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. God wants to make himself known to us, right? We sang about that this morning. The worship was really tuned into that. Jesus, come reveal yourself, show yourself to us. We want to be intimate with you. But you know one other thing that I found in the Bible? Sometimes he hides himself. And there are a number of scriptures that indicate that. And I wonder, I wonder, if in this instance, Jesus veiled himself until the right moment and then revealed himself. I'm not going to get to the rest of these pages. I can see this. Verse 25, when he opens the scripture. here's, Here's a thought. Whatever we're facing... When we think there are no answers, we don't know the way out. We don't know what the future holds for us. There's always another perspective. And it's in the Scripture. And Jesus gave them that. The Scripture enlightens us. Psalm 19, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. The verses there talk about the Word of God enlightening the eyes. And in a moment, in the familiar, in the common meal... Jesus reveals himself, but it's only for a moment. And then he's gone. But guess what? That moment was enough. It was enough. The scripture had begun to stir and ignite hope in them. And when Jesus reveals himself as the resurrected hope of the world, it was enough for them to have their hope sparked. They run with excitement back and they talk to the other disciples. And just a moment was enough. Well, let me let me give you three quick takeaways. Can I have five more minutes? Five more minutes? Okay. I, I started to name this when finding Jesus. But I had to rename it. Jesus finds us. Jesus finds us when we fail. Jesus finds us individually, and Jesus finds us when we're lost and confused doing the right thing. That's where I'm in that last place right there. But let, let me just look at this thing with with Peter. Right, go home and read chapter twenty-one of John. At the trial, at the fire, Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. And you know, and and, and in fact, it it talks about him. Denying Jesus vehemently with curse words to a young girl. What's that about? Well, I think. I think at least in part. I mean, it could have been fear. Jesus is on trial. He's been been beaten. uh, Peter could be next. The disciples could be next. Could have been doubt. Could have been shame. He didn't want to be associated with that. Could have been confusion, uncertainty. Maybe all of the above. But I think In part, it was that Peter was concerned about what other people thought. Where do you get that, James? Well, later on, first of all, in Jesus' restoration passage, in this passage where Jesus comes in John 21 and restores Peter, he tells him, you are going to triumph over this weakness. And he tells him that by telling him the death that he's going to die. He's going to die a martyr. So in the end, Peter is going to stand... For Jesus, to the point of death. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Jesus is going to stand alone for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus. Now, how do I uh, get this idea that I think he was worried about other people? Well, read in Galatians the second chapter, Paul's commentary about Peter and what Peter did in the book of Acts. At one point, Peter was eating with Gentiles because of Acts chapter 10, when he goes to the house of Cornelius, and he's hanging out with Gentiles. Well, as for a Jew, that's bad. That's not good, right? Well, then when word gets out to the, to the big boys in Jerusalem, he stops eating with the Gentiles. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I had to confront him on his hypocrisy. Well, what was that about? He was afraid of what other people would think. So I think there's an issue to that. How does that relate to us? Jesus comes in John chapter 4 and or John chapter 21 rather and all the other disciples there, there are seven other disciples but he targets Peter and you know the encounter. He goes to Peter and says, Do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Peter. And Peter's like, he's, he's um, upset. What is Jesus doing? Well, obviously, for each of the three denials, Jesus is going after Peter. I believe that Jesus loves us so much, he's going to go after us in our failure. He went after Peter. And not only did he go after him to let him know that he was forgiven. He went after him and drilled down to the root issue. In that passage, in fact, turn uh, if you want, I'll I'll read it to you here in. uh, Boy, that was a fast five minutes. Let me let me just read this to you in John 21 verse 19 Jesus said to this said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would glorify God then he said to him Jesus said to Peter follow me Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved that's that's John the one that leaned against Jesus at supper and Peter said, Lord, who is going to be uh, oh, well, that inner counter? Um, Peter saw him. And he asked, Lord, what about him? So Peter has this intimate encounter with Jesus. And he's like, he's kind of worried about John. He's like, well, what about him? Listen to what Jesus said. Verse 25, 22. If I want him to remain alive. What is that to you? You must follow me. I think that's that 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 that's piece. Eat the chicken and throw away the bones. Peter, I'm telling you your story, not his story. I think C.S. Lewis picked this up. If you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, this this one, uh, the, the Horse and His Boy, there's a, a part in there where he's riding along and uh, at night and it's pitch black and he feels the breath on his hand and he knows that this is a big you know a big being and um, and they begin this dialogue and and it begins to reveal that he's aslan of course and he's the lion and he's the lion that actually you know did some things that uh, the boy didn't understand and uh, he begins to ask about the girl who had been injured And Aslan says, that's her story. I only tell you your story. So Jesus comes to us when we fail, but Jesus comes to us as individuals. I am so committed to community as being vital, but be careful that it doesn't become dysfunctional. That our spirituality becomes dependent on someone else's spirituality. And when a leader falls or an elder fails or someone else goes off the rails, they end up in the ditch and then your faith is a wreck. Remember the words of Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. The black spiritual picked it up. Though no one joined me, still I will follow. So Jesus finds us when we fail. He finds us individually. And then, this is, this is the last part. You know, for me, I said, well, what, what, what about when you've done the right thing? And God seems silent. You know, to fail is, and know that God's going to come to you in your failure, that's great. But what about the times when you do everything right? And the results are silence or confusion or disorientation. The story of Joseph comes to mind what if what if you put all in, think about these two on the road to amaze, all in to follow Jesus. They believe that he 's the one sent by God, the promised Messiah. He, his words are powerful and com- comforting at the same time. they're inspiring and challenging. His words are soothing and empowering. His compassion is winsome and it draws us His ability to heal the broken. And give hope to the lost and aimless just attracts us. And what if you give your heart and your allegiance to this man from Galilee, and then you watch as he's brutally and mercilessly crucified right in front of your eyes. And all of a sudden, your whole world is thrown into confusion. It was the right thing to follow him. It was the right thing to give him your heart. It was the right thing to give Him your life and your fortune. You were tapping into the will of God for yourself individually. Tapping into the will of God in the bigger sense of God's purpose. And then He's gone. And you're left confused. But in a moment, for just a moment, He opened your eyes.